Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Get set for the shock of your lifetime, the flaming teenage, a story that will take you from hell to eternity, the true unvarnished confession of a juvenile delinquent. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and this is the True Tunes Podcast. As you may know, the original iteration of True Tunes, in the form of a record store and a newsprint magazine, opened 30 years ago this summer. A couple of months ago, we marked that occasion with a special class reunion at the warehouse in Aurora, Illinois. On this episode of the podcast, we will begin to listen to some of the conversations we recorded that night. In fact, we got so much great stuff with Glenn Kaiser, Michael McDermott, Jeff Elbel, Josiah Violand, and others, we're actually going to split it into two episodes. I even let Jeff Elbel, a rock journalist of the highest order, who has interviewed some of the biggest names in rock history, turn the tables and interview me, which was fun. Then later we'll drop some plug nickels in the True Tunes jukebox and check out the new album by Sheryl Crow and Welcome to Paradise by Randy Stonehill. On July 6th, a bunch of us gathered at the warehouse in Aurora, Illinois to celebrate 30 years since True Tunes originally opened its doors in downtown Wheaton. The warehouse was my home church from 1988 until we moved to Nashville in 2007, and in many ways still is, and was a central part of the True Tunes story, often hosting concerts that True Tunes promoted and always supporting everything we did. Several former staffers, including Chris Langell, Wheezy B, Clay Anderson, and Paul Scott, came along with a slew of friends, both old and new. We listened to good music, ate good food, and had some great conversations. Here are some excerpts from that fantastic night. So ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Kaiser. You might be the wrong color you might be the wrong shape In the wrong place at the wrong time Enemies at your gate Wearing the wrong clothing Wearing the wrong face Too fast, too slow Losing the human race But honey, I got news for you Someone is on your side Just understand salvation Means being crucified. Someone wise told me to choose my heroes carefully. 
When I was 13 years old and just getting turned on to this world of faith-driven rock and alternative music, one of the first bands to get my attention was Chicago's Resurrection or Res Band. And that band's lead singer and rhythm guitarist, Glenn Kaiser, became one of my first real heroes. I'm glad to say I chose this hero pretty wisely. Glenn is like an arrow that always flies in the same direction. No matter how it's shot, it ends up on the same path. He is passionate about people, especially marginalized people. He is passionate about the gospel, and he practices what he preaches. And he has told me since the day I met him, he's no saint. He's not perfect, but he and his wife Wendy and so many of the other Jesus people that I got to meet around them have been such a wonderful exception to the typical religious stereotype that, well, I thank God for them all the time. Although Res Band disbanded long ago, Glenn continues to write and record blues, both solo and with his three-piece Glenn Kaiser Band, and he performs and serves constantly, especially in prisons and shelters. True Tunes was launched in 1989 with a party that included Res Band, Charlie Peacock, and another metal band called Sacred Warrior. I was so thrilled that Glenn agreed to come play some music and talk with us as a part of this 30-year event. Here's a part of that conversation. When you played with the 77s at College of DuPage, 1983, I think, or 84, it was probably my youth pastor back there that took me to that show too, I would imagine. I really was determined, I had pre-cleared this with my parents, that if I could get you guys to come to the house the next day for dinner, they would provide a home-cooked meal for all of Res Band um, and whoever else could come. And so all I had to do was get to the band and make the invitation, and we lived right down the street from College of DuPage. And so I saw a guy pushing a road case and I just kind of grabbed on like he needed help and just helped him <laughs> and pushed the road case backstage and thought now all I have to do is find Glenn Kaiser. And then you just emerged. You walked into the hallway with all of your cool rock clothes and collected myself and I said, Glenn Kaiser, I'm John Thompson and I live right down the street and my mom and dad said that if you guys wanted to come over for dinner tomorrow, we would make a whole spread of uh, chicken and blah, 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 blah. and you were really nice and you're listening to me. I'm, I'm like thinking of this now. I'm 13 years old and I've snuck backstage at a big rock show and I'm inviting you to my house for dinner the next day. And you're listening and, and then when I finish this spiel, Wendy comes out and I'm like, that's Wendy Kaiser. And you said, hey, Wendy, this is John. He just invited us over for dinner tomorrow. What do you think? And for a few seconds, I'm thinking, gonna come have dinner at my house it's gonna happen it's actually and she's like she goes glenn we're in chicago like this show is in we're in chicago this is where we live we have to go home and have dinner at home and you were like oh john i, I forgot that we're actually we're on tour so we've been in all these other cities and i forgot for a minute that we're back home but for a second 13 years old i thought i was gonna have the coolest rock band in the world have dinner at my house the Lord reigns, let the people tremble is high above angels, let the whole earth shake. Is great in Zion, praised above all people. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Let them praise thy great. Let them praise thy great. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. You guys started long before there was an industry that was putting up walls and putting up boundaries around. This is called Christian music and this is called this kind of music and there was no industry for your music when you guys started there was no distribution channels you were kind of out there on your own tell just a little bit about what it was like when you guys started playing this music what kind of places did you play and what were you thinking uh, the whole concept for us was pretty simple we want to reflect Jesus himself uh, 
share bits of testimony of our lives, of where we'd been and where he brought us, and ultimately see people come to know and really follow Jesus. Not, you know, just pray a quick prayer and blow out the door and, you know, live like they'd been living. What's the point? So, you know, to me, to me, if it was only art, period, for me, it, it, it's no judge on other bands or other musicians. To me, it's just a waste of time. I mean, I understand the benefits of art. Because you had been doing music 12 Prior years to old. this, yeah, in bands, in clubs, the 13 whole thing. Right. in band. The first song I wrote, by the way, is called Don't Lie to Me. I can't stand myself when I know that I'm on the edge of playing a game. So the music and the band, I mean, it's literally resurrection. It's Christ is raised from the dead. The power of, of, of God to change my life, our lives, which is still a miracle. I mean, it's, a, it's flat out, it's the central thing is relationship to him and so yeah to put those things across and and the gift of evangelism so i'm not going to not talk about jesus i'm not because for you the social justice was not something you talked about in addition to your faith it was your faith made no sense if you weren't also talking about apartheid in south africa and poverty in the inner city all of that was all the same thing there was no Christianity apart from talking about the poor and talking no, about... No, how can you... I mean, people want to debate this idea of social justice that everybody who... And I'm, I'm like, I'm reading Matthew 25 and you got stuff like, what's... When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, you ever think about Food, water, clothing, housing. You can't survive without those. The last two things are sickness, illness, healthcare, anybody? Big pharma, uh, Poverty comes in, uh, unexpected disease, uh, you're wiped out. That's what happened to our family, actually. My dad had three operations, we lost everything. It was overnight, you know. And then the last thing Jesus mentions is, I was a prisoner, and you came to me. The least of the least of these, you know, lock them up, the dregs, you know. They probably are just reaping what they've sown. So you understand, people can say, well, that's your leftist you know, view, that's your old, you know, hippie, uh, you know, kind of a thing, right? But it comes right out of God's word, and my motivation is God's word and Jesus Christ talking about separating the sheep from the goats by how we treat people in those six areas, four of which are a matter of human physical survival. The fifth kind of two, right? Healthcare, which doesn't mean you're gonna, you mean you may or may not get cured of cancer from medication and so on. And then prison. When you guys were doing this in the coming out of the counterculture era in the '60s, you were kids. You were teenagers. Activism. You, you were part of that generation. Hunger hike, Vietnam was, uh, right. marches, all of it. And so, do you think that now, the way things, uh, it seems to me that a lot of what was happening with the birth of the kind of mega church modern evangelicalism, it sprung out of that Jesus movement phase of that same era, the early 70s. It's the same battle all over again, talking about prisoner reform, talking about incarceration, how we treat immigrants. How it's, do you see as someone who's kind of always stayed outside of that stream, a need for some kind of new Jesus movement well, that, Jesus, would, that would reform the, the church in some well, way? Well, Jesus, Jesus um, his idea of math is leaving the 99 and going after the one, for one thing. But... There were times when he had many thousands of people, you know, following, when he fed the 5,000, that 
and he does a miracle to feed them. They're hungry and he feeds them. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I think the greatest miracle is that the disciples gave him the few loaves and fish that they had, that they actually let Jesus take them, break them, sanctify them, hand them, and then they fed the people. The miracle is that the disciples gave up their lunch. Uh, you know, the church don't want to give up its lunch. Or like, when I go into Cook County Jail, almost every time, I'm going with the Willow Creek team. They're some of the most genuine brothers. When I go into to, to Cook County, every single time I blog about that, I'm going in with the Willow Creek team. I know, look, you've got good people at Japuza and Knuckleheads, and you always have. You've got good people in the Lutheran, Baptist, Pentecostal, warehouse, mega churches, you, and you've got yahoos, right? right. <laughs> I mean, this is, come on, you know, think of your family. Everybody in your family got their brains in their head. They're all mature and committed and loving and compassionate, and they all suss out scripture, and they're, they take God's word seriously, and they live it out every day, right? Come on. So we, we can't expect that of the evangelicals. We can't expect it of the mainline denomination. We can't expect it of the house church. It doesn't, name the stream of church. There, there's levels of maturity and commitment and immaturity and foolishness. There's ignorance of what God says in his own word about the issues, whatever they may be. Uh, and, and there's brilliance sometimes. And you f I find both in every stream, in every church. Holy Spirit, move in me. Give me the eyes to see my Lord more clearly. Holy Spirit, renew my mind. Unveil these roles I play in my masquerade. So now that that industry the christian music industry that had separated itself and kind of fostered that sort of thing is essentially gone i mean the the industry that the, the rock side of it the ccm side of it is pretty much just worship music and then everything else is gone and artists don't have to crawl through any of those kind of hoops you as a mentor now talking to young artists that have a a faith burden, but also want to speak to social issues. They want to connect and, and be protest artists. They want to uh, impact and, and affect social change. What do you have to say to that next generation? How can they do this effectively and, and keep wind in their sails? Quit thinking of your audience as your audience. They're either brothers and sisters in Christ or they're your potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Start with what Jesus said. There's some negative stuff in, in the four Gospels attributed to Jesus. So, a bunch about what, you know, eternal life, and not everybody's going to get it. It's about influence, and it's about caring enough that the person you're with is the most important person right here, right now in your life. What do they need? And either I can help you, or I can network you with somebody that can. And if that's your heart, and that's your perspective, and you're not going to agree on everything. Politically, doctrinally, theologically, methodology, man, that's the biggest church splitter in the world is, you know, we never did it this way before, or we have to do it this way, and separating people left, right, and center over their choices, their desires, you know. Music, same thing, you know, it's, I'm, you can, you can, you can get in a slot and demand other people get in that slot with you, stylistically or what have you, you know because it's where you're comfortable and it's what you like. So, I mean, anybody can demand spiritual growth and maturity of anybody, and that doesn't work. But I think we have to think, I'm not simply a musician who 
facing a crowd. It was never about the money, and it, it can't be. What is that all about? Is that commitment to God and the people? No, it isn't. It's a commitment to yourself. And I, and I think it's, it's the fact that artists sometimes get so myopic, so focused, this is my desire, my goal. It was about bringing people together who often felt very, very unappreciated, unloved, unwelcome because of their subculture and their culture. I have friends that are so far right, I mean so far right, there's no way we agree on everything. I have friends that are so far left, we're never gonna agree on some things, right? And these people, like, sometimes they think, are you, are you nuts? How come you, why do you even give them the time of day? They're, they're idiots, they're bums. Well, they're idiots and bums Jesus loves and died for. They're human beings, that's somebody's son, daughter. I see them every day behind bars. That's a human being with a name. You don't know how they got there. You don't know the backstory. And part of your empathy for artists, Dave Bunker's empathy for artists, my empathy for human beings, many of whom are, are, are artists, musicians, and otherwise. I mean, isn't that really what this is all about? Why are we on this stinking planet to impress people with our abilities? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not why I'm breathing. Pain in my heart, mud all over my dreams. A lot of people are so frustrated with the way the culture is going, so frustrated with the way the injustice that's in their face and they feel powerless and they feel like they don't have a song. They feel like they have nothing to sing along to. And there's, we, we don't just need old protest songs. They're great, I love them. Um, but we need new, we need young, new people to, be, to write songs that are spiritual, that are soulful, that are, that are laments, that are, that are discontent. It's out of the abundance of the heart, the singer sings, the writer writes. I mean, if I don't believe it, look, I was in the studio once in, in Tone Zone, in our pro studio, with a brilliant musician who's a brilliant singer. And he, he, he nailed the track, and I mean, I've almost never done this, but I was supposed to be one of the producers. That was part of the gig. And I listened, and he stopped, and he thought he was done. I knew he thought he was done. And I looked at the other two guys in the studio and said, I don't believe him. I mean, I, it's, was, it was technically fabulous. And it wasn't that he didn't sing well. Right? I want to believe that what you're singing is what you mean, because if you don't mean it, why the heck should I pay attention to you? So they're looking at me and saying, they went, tell him. You know, they're bailing. I passed the buck right. So I push a talk back and I say, that was, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not jiving you. That was really brilliant. But I don't believe you. Please take another pass. He freaked. I said, please, please. We're going to save that. We've got a lot of tracks open. Just pour it out. The dude nailed it. And the first thing he came back in the studio and said was, Nobody has ever treated me like that before in the studio. He was ticked. And I said, well, that is your loss and the loss of people that love you and that have bought your albums. <laughs> I'm sorry. All due respect. <laughs>
he looked at me, well, it's our studio and I'm one of the producers, so what's he going to do? So it was a little bit of a, I'm the authority guy for the moment kind of a thing. But, you know, it was just, and I've had people, I thought that was wonderful, or Ty Tabor producing Lament. I thought I was doing a scratch vocal. I, I was like, what? No, he's, it's, we're not going to touch it. And I'm like, what? He said, it was so honest and so raw, and even with a couple of glitches. Don't, no, 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 it's finished. And I'm like, and, and the Holy Spirit's going, Glenn, stop it. Right now, that's it. It's good. He's right. He's a producer. Let it go. He's got it. You don't hear it right now. You'll hear it in a week. You'll get it. Leave it alone. So the wisdom of working with somebody who's willing to say, whoa, uh, or come up hither, as it were, you know, step up. You, you can do that better. You can put your heart and your passion into it or, or get out of the business. Do something else. Right, exactly. That's amen. Glenn Kaiser, everybody. My goodness. Wow. Jeff Elbel is my kind of polymath. Longtime True Tunes followers may remember him as the author of the cover story on Terry Scott Taylor in True Tunes News. Some will know him as the songwriter and vocalist of the band Ping, a regular at the Cornerstone Festival for many years. Before that, he was in a band called Farewell to Juliet. He also ran an indie label and aided and abetted artists like Michael Knott, Brian Healy, Everyday Life, and others. He's an accomplished bass player, audio engineer, and guitar tech to the stars. Oh, and he's a rocket scientist. It's true, we'll talk about that later. But for the last several years, Jeff has been covering the live music scene for the Illinois Entertainer and the Chicago Sun-Times. He has interviewed numerous Rock Hall of Fame members and has reviewed dozens of sold out stadium shows and fascinating niche concerts. He is truly one of the most impressive rock writers I know. And he used to be a True Tunes regular. When the idea of a 30-year class reunion came together, I knew that El Bell had to be a major part of it. I wanted some version of his band to play, I didn't even care which one, and I wanted to talk with him about the amazing work he's doing writing about music at such a high level. Here's a bit of that conversation on stage at the True Tunes 30-year reunion last July. You're an interesting person to talk to because you're both an artist as well as a writer about music, and you're a rocket scientist. Um, one funny story is when I stayed at Jeff's house in California, the guest room was also full of toys, like uh, Star Wars toys, and the kind of toys that I would collect too. And, and um, I thought, wow, your wife lets you keep all this stuff and have a whole room for this. Like, your wife needs to hang out with my wife. But um, I'm brushing my teeth in the, in the thing, and I look, and there in the bathroom kind of area is your diploma from University of Illinois that says something like masters in aerospace or rocket science stuff. Aeronautical and astronautical engineering. So, yeah. And I, I, f I felt like the, the bathroom vanity was the appropriate place to hang. <laughs> because there was no room over the back of the toilet, like where you would put your Grammy Award or your Dove Award. Right. So, and I walked downstairs for breakfast and I said, Jeff Elbow, are you a rocket scientist? And you said... Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sheepishly, yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So whenever you say, well, it's not rocket scientists, you're the one that can actually answer whether, in fact, it is rocket science. I'm usually the one uttering that phrase. Though, so <laughs> right. I, I don't get called to vet it very often. The credentials only get you so far. One, two, three, four. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Who's that 
walking in the garden Hiding well I beg your pardon I'm not fit to go out there Haven't got a stitch to wear In a nutshell, what is your job as a rocket scientist? What do you actually do? Um, in the past, you've been involved in the aiming of satellites and doing all the math that has to do with I, how satellites stay lined up. And all yes, that. I've been an orbital analyst for a satellite provider uh, so everybody could get MTV and cell phones and pagers. Uh, the interesting thing about that one was uh, we had to rotate the on-call part of the job so everybody would be on call for two weeks at a time and you would dread it when your time would come up because you knew we'd get called all hours of the day and night. Uh, and then one of the last times I was on call, it was really quiet and it was... I had a gig to play in Hollywood at the time, and so that was always the thing. You're playing a gig. You don't want the pager to go off during the gig. And it was... Because the it, pager going off means a satellite means, in space means, is yes, screwed exactly. up, and it's your job to go fix it. Right now. Wow. And so uh, it, it wasn't. It was quiet. And then uh, the next morning, I turned in the pager, and uh, I f found out that overnight, Galaxy 4 had ruptured... Uh, a fuel line and spun out and gone out of orbit. And that was when everybody in North America lost pager service for three days. And it was, and nobody knew for the first day. They're all just right. like, thank the Lord. Nobody is calling me right now. I'm trying to have Yeah, lunch. I got so and much like, done. like, why isn't anybody calling me was what it was three days later. They found right. out. And I remember one time when solar flares caused the satellites to go out and it was in the news and my phone wasn't working or something. And I called you joking and I said, hey, Jeff, can you fix my cell phone? Because <laughs> yeah. it's not working. And, and you picked up the phone and you're like, stop calling me. I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> like you were totally stressed out because you were actually fixing the satellite that was like. I think the answer might have been, I'm working on it, John. Yeah, yeah you yeah. were very frustrated with me. Our neighbors are such kindly folk, friendly to the last. The common peaceful living here has vanished in the past. Since the day that they brought home a shepherd dog to keep us up because we never get to sleep. Bark along with Cody, howl with all your might. Bark along at nothing, do it day and night. The song is never ending, join any time you like. Bark along with Cody, step up to the mic. Well, I bring all that up because I find it, I find it fascinating for one thing that I have a friend as smart as you. Um, Meanwhile, all the time, you're making music and you're writing songs and you're producing records and you ran a little indie label. You'd think someone as smart as you aiming satellites would be smart enough to stay the heck away from the music business. Uh, like What's I wrong say, with you? Uh, you know, parts of the brain are broken. Parts of the, the brain work very well. I see. And so fortunately, one of the parts of the brain that, that works has allowed us to keep the lights on and, and, right. and feed bottomless pits for the last 13 or 14 years. So is it safe to say that music for you has been a soul-building um, fun thing that your day job supports. I know that you would say the same th Well, I suspect you would say the same thing. It's not always fun, right? It's just, it's compulsion. You feel like you must do it or part of your soul will crumble. And it's, it's always the, the, th the thing I felt compelled to do and wanted to invest spirit in and where I felt connected to other people through art. I felt like the, the music gives you a way to examine and compose and prepare your speeches and, and, and say something that you intend to say rather than what I usually say casually, which is the wrong thing. And you only get so many do-overs in your life. So uh, there, there's some of that to it, but 
uh, just earliest, my earliest memories of being a kid, or you know, my dad, for example, playing, uh, he would play bridge over tro- troubled water. This was when I was two. You know, I don't have many memories from when I was two and three. But there's that, and Herb Alpert's going places, Tijuana Taxi, Spanish Flea, all that stuff. So all my earliest memories are around music, and then you know, uh, sitting up alone in my room with my 45s and playing the close and play record player and all that stuff. So music has just been constant. What about writing about music? You're really good. I mean, you you are writing about music at a very high level now. Uh, when I am when did that start and how have you gotten so good at that? I started, I, did, I was a late bloomer on that. I mean, I read about everybody, I read everybody's stories about music because I lived in the, in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't go see it. Where was that middle I, of nowhere? Well, Ron and I are from Mount Morris, Illinois. It's about right. an hour and 20 minutes from here along Route 64. It's about what 40 45 minutes from rockford 110 miles west of the marina towers but it's a geographical oddity two weeks from everywhere That's, uh, <laughs> nice. so, some rocket science uh, yeah so there. i mean that was uh, I, I remember being in high school reading uh, reading about the 1098 album by midnight oil for example but certainly nobody from rockford or any anything that you wls we could get wls there nobody was playing midnight oil in Mount Morris, Illinois. Uh, but I read about them, it's like, wow, that's a band I would really like, this whole radical political thing. And, um, and you know, they're really investing something other than just music. And and so I, I, I had absorbed all that that I could read. Uh, and then when I got into college and started actually playing in bands, because I was a late bloomer at that too, I didn't start playing in bands until college. And then I found it was a really good way to blow off physics and chemistry homework. Uh, I started. I started writing. Uh, or, or I, I found out about the Daily Illini, the newspaper in Champaign, Illinois, and and it's like, well, they've got other students writing about this stuff, and they get free tickets to go see shows at the Assembly Hall, so maybe I should try to do that. And that's when I that, that's when I started writing about music. Uh, but I guess as far as writing at a high level, you know, they, there are more entertaining writers. My writing does tend to be very analytical. And, uh, it, you know, I try to put people in the seat, you know, a lot of detail, you are there type stuff. And that's just because of the way my brain operates. That's how I got through my thesis, everything else, just by being orbital analyst, same skill set. What do you think is the key to effectively writing about music? What can we accomplish when we write about music that can actually do something meaningful for the reader, the listener, and for the artist? What, what's the best we can pull off when we well, try that? Well, let me see if this is, again, I, I answer part of the question without answering all the questions, so stop me and send me backward. Uh, but I think uh it would be good for more people to spend time getting out caring about art that's being made by real people in real time it's a hard thing to do now uh because they can stay at home and they can play any number of video games they can play Fortnite. yeah they they can watch youtube all night but i think it's i think it's good for the soul to get up and get out among other people and share an experience it's it's hard to make people care when they have so many options for so many things fighting for their attention so the way uh, that I try to write is try to give 
details of things that really happen in the room, I sort of take myself out of it. Like when I write, it's not really critique. I don't really criticize music. I describe music. I whistle about chickens, Adrian Blue said, or I dance about architecture, Mullen Zappa said. So uh, I, you know, I try to bring in some details. You know, what the guy say, what he do. You know, what what happened that was funny? Bono fell backwards down the stairs, and you know, somebody's gonna go. Wow, I wish I'd seen that. I wish I'd seen Bono fall backwards down the stairs, do a somersault, and get up singing. You know, how'd that go down? Uh, but just try to describe the human experience of it and, and, and get some neurons firing and get people out. You were telling me a story recently about some coverage you had of the U2 show where Greg Cott, who I love Greg Cott's writing and, yeah. and I love his show on, on uh, public radio, uh, but Greg had a one position on something in the morning paper, and you had the competing position. Yep. Yeah, I think that happened because, uh, you know, I understand what I, what I try to do as a writer if I'm up here singing songs and telling, telling story, the, the Adam and Eve story with the corny jokes built into it. Still, I'm, there, there's, there's a song and a point of view I'm trying to put across and trying to connect with people and, and tell a story. And when I saw the U2 concert, for the last, over the last four years, U2 mounted three shows. They did a show around the Innocence and Experience album. Then they came back and did their anniversary show for the Joshua Tree where they played all the big hits. And then they came back and they played their Experience and Innocence show around their most recent album, Songs of, so it's Songs of Innocence and then Songs of Experience. And what they, what they didn't do was what everybody expected. A 40-year-old band that's still playing has come out and play uh, I Will Follow, Sunday Bloody Sunday, With or Without You, and Where the Streets of No Name. None of those, uh, I Will Follow was played one of the nights, but no, no Where the Streets of No Name, uh, no With or Without You. Uh, instead, they took all the new material and threaded a story that was obviously dangerously close to the bone for Bono. And I felt like the other writer, in this case, Greg Cott, who's a real hero of mine, talked about, you know, how great you two were when they were firebrands and they were dangerous and they're out on stage playing this stuff and where he felt he didn't even say that he thought they weren't playing it safe by not playing new material and not playing hits. He just said, well, I missed all this stuff and I felt like they've gone soft and, uh, and, and didn't connect. And the story that I told was, I felt like the story that the band was trying to tell, where they were talking about coming out of, uh, you know, rough times and living through the, the, the troubles in, in Ireland and, and uh, you know, Bono losing his mother at a young age and struggling with his father and finding himself and finding his own voice. It was really moving. And so, I, you know, I wrote about it from, from, from that perspective, and I think that, that made my story different. And the, apparently the band heard about it, and they invited me back the next night to see the show again. Tell them about what Bono wrote on your. Oh uh, yeah, so so two two things happened out of that experience. There was a song, what I considered to be the best song on Songs of Experience, is Red Flag Day. It was the only song on that record that'll remind you of like, wow, this is the band that made War, you know. Um, but they they had quit playing it, and I mentioned the publicist said, well, you know, the band felt like the first night wasn't really the story they were trying to tell, or it didn't go as well as they thought, and they wondered if you'd want to come back and see it again. And I had to say, well, let me think. You know, they didn't play Red Flag Day. And, uh, and I think that would have fit really well right there. And uh, there, there was a meeting the following morning, apparently, where they read my story, and the band actually played Red Flag Day that night. 
Who knows? They were probably going to play it anyway, but I can kid myself and, tell, and say that uh, they played Red Flag Day because I requested it. Uh, but uh, they, they, gave, they gave Melinda and I uh, passes to go sit in the VIP lounge uh, before the show, which you think, oh, we're going to go meet the band. But it's, you know, it just means they have a little open bar and you can, you know, you can get a, a cup from a box of wine or something like that. So we, we sat up there and watched everybody uh, wait for the band to come out. But the publicist came out. And uh, I first saw you two at the Aragon Ballroom in 1984. It was December, I believe it was December 8th, 1984. I might get the date wrong. But it was December 84. It was my first trip out of Mount Morris on my own and, uh, in, the, in the Griswold station wagon with the fake wood paneling on the side. That was right about the time that the Unforgettable Fire came out. And I have brought that record sleeve with me to every U2 show that I've been to since December 1984 because you never know. Uh, it, it's kind of tough when there are 30,000 other people there, but at least we're in the same room. Maybe, maybe the edge is going to walk by. You don't know. So the bub- anyway, the publicist saw the bag that I was carrying, and I told her that. I said, I've had this record with me at every show that I've ever uh, seen by U2, and I've seen every U2 tour except for one since 1984. And she said, oh, would you like to have that signed? And I went, <coughs> uh, yes. She said they, they don't meet anybody anymore. I think it was because of Bono's recovery from his injuries and a lot of, and just general age. He said they don't meet anybody anymore, but uh, I know where you're sitting. Give me your record. And it's like, <laughs> I handed her the record, and she, and she brought it back to me halfway through the show, signed by everybody in the group. It's in a frame on the wall by my, by my desk. I see it every day all the time. So it's a really and what did Bono write on it? Yeah, so on the, uh, at, but at the bottom, of the record, everybody else wrote, you know, it's, uh, uh, The Edge, Larry Mullen Jr., Adam Clayton. Adam Clayton wrote the biggest. He took about half the record by himself because he's the bass player. And <laughs> bass players need, don't get all the attention, right. so they have to make their own way. Uh, and then Bono wrote, Mmm, uh, uh, still fresh vinyl, and me, still committed to burning down our castle. And so that, that was the point of the story, is that U2 has, has gone out on a limb. They have not played it safe. Uh, they could easily come out and play the greatest hit show, but that's what they did last time. They did the Joshua Tree Tour. And so uh, they're not going to win a lot of new fans by trying this, unless people are really invested in what... Do, do they have something to say? Are they still trying to create art? And I felt like they were, and so did he. The road I think that your your musicianship makes you a better writer, and the fact that you're a fan, the fact that you're writing for the Sun Times, but you're bringing a record hoping you can get it signed, uh, yeah. like the nerdy fanboy in me just resonates with that uh, in a big way. Everybody knows I'm the I'm the biggest fanboy dork ever as well. We we would compete for, sure. for that title, um, but. I, I encourage you to just keep doing that, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can find ways with this new True Tunes launch to help kind of mentor and raise up another generation of younger people mm-hmm. who can write about and discuss, talk about process music uh, in this way, where they're thinking about it in a deeper level, uh, because I just think there's more there than this MP3. Streaming is great, streaming has a lot, there's a lot of stuff about it that I think is cool. But it also makes music very disposable, and it's background noise that's happening while we're doing other things. And uh, so it's good sometimes to 
slow down and listen, to stop everything else and, and just listen to the record. And I think what you're doing with the way you write about music, I love when you post it on Facebook or wherever, you, and there's another article, like Paul McCartney or it's The Who, or it's, I'm like, that's Jeff, and he's writing, he's talking to these rock stars, and, and you, you find the thread. If it's okay to add a coda onto it without dragging it out too much, I think it's okay to love it. I think, I think a little bit of Peter Pan syndrome isn't necessarily unhealthy. You know, I'll be 53 in October. I should have outgrown this stuff a long time ago, but I haven't, so why fight it? Uh, so I, I, I never approached the writing thing like, well, I'm a musician and I, I didn't make it, and so I'm going to go tear these other things down. You know, the, you know, the, the, the bitter, frustrated musician angle of things doesn't come into it. It's, uh, yeah, I like to pick it apart and see how it works, but I like to do that because I really love it and I want my art to be better and I want other people to thrive. And so, um, yeah, if, if younger writers come up with that attitude, then I'm going to champion those people as well. Awesome. As I said before, Jeff Albell is a very high-level music journalist. Someone had the idea of turning the tables and having him interview me, and it actually went really well. It helps that Jeff and I are longtime friends, of course, but he came with questions prepared. I, I learned a few things, too. And on our next podcast, I put Jeff's journalistic skills and his patience to the test. We'll also include our conversation with Michael McDermott and upstart Josiah Violand of The Spectators, so be sure to join us for that. Thanks to Randy Schoff and everyone at the warehouse for hosting the event that day and Randy for recording everything. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. It wouldn't take much to prove you wrong. It wouldn't take much to prove you wrong. Cheryl Crow says that her latest release, Threads, will be her final full-length album. If that's true, she's going out with a bang. Depending on how you count, Threads is her 10th studio album, and it's a whopper. 17 songs, mostly new originals, with some well-chosen covers and a powerful reinterpretation of one of her own older songs. But it's not just how long this party is, it's the guest list. Somewhere around 27 guest artists make appearances here. It's hard to count because some, like Don Henley, aren't even credited. And any sane person would be right to expect a cavalcade of stars like this to be a bloated, self-serving, aimless legacy grab. Somehow, though, Crow manages to thread an impossible needle. Despite the weight of a couple dozen egos and in the shadow of legends, this thing takes off and soars. There is a train that's heading straight to heaven's gate to heaven's gate and on the way child and man and woman wait watch and wait for redemption day With this much real estate, Crow is able to cover every sonic corner she has colonized over the last 26 years, and then some. 
from the irascible pop country of the opening cut Prove You Wrong, which sees her collaborating with both a mentor, Stevie Nicks, and a protege, Marin Morris, to her downright haunting posthumous duet with the late Johnny Cash on Redemption Day, a song she wrote, Johnny covered, and she now reclaims, and at all points in between, the songs feel like true collaborations, not mere attempts to burnish a legacy or leverage famous friendships. No telling when the lightning strike, the way you make me feel, I gotta hold on tight. I does she have some famous friends. The Threads motif fits both musically and relationally, with representatives from rock, country, Americana, soul, hip-hop, pop, and alternative music all finding a seat at the table. Standout tracks for me include the sultry Live Wire with Mavis Staples and Bonnie Raitt, a loose and rollicking spin on Dylan's Everything is Broken with Jason Isbell, and the sweet-hearted and perfectly cheesy Still the Good Old Days with Joe Walsh. St. Vincent's pop rap jam Wouldn't Wanna Be Like You proves that Crow can be just as hipster as she wants to be, while blues guitar legend in the making Gary Clark Jr. adds some amazing resonance to the social justice burner story of everything. Main Street, USA, everybody's closing shop. Cause them that's got get richer, it's the have and the have nots. My cousin stays on welfare. Cause it pays more than a job. really is remarkable, and I believe unprecedented, for an artist to collaborate with such a diverse group of artists and remain so cohesive. Whether she is in a smoky bar with Willie Nelson or Keith Richards, or an orchestra hall with the alternative group Lucius, or maybe creating harmonic bliss with Vince Gill or Emmylou Harris, the songs remain fully and completely Sheryl Crow songs. Tell me when it's Threads are weak on their own. They find their significance when they either connect one thing to another or when they are woven together into a fabric. I broke down the theology of threads in an article at thinkchristian.net if you'd like to look that up. You can find it either on their site or you can find a link from truetunes.com. I actually hope Crow is not done as an artist, and I doubt she is. This album demonstrates a command of her craft that is special indeed. She went down to
side B of the jukebox this time, we're going back to 1976 and what was, for all intents and purposes, the debut album by singer-songwriter Randy Stonehill. Welcome to Paradise, produced by Larry Norman and released on his solid rock label, was not actually Randy Stonehill's first album. In 1970, he recorded a very rough-around-the-edges indie record with Norman called Born Twice. He had also tracked an album called Get Me Out of Hollywood that was to have been a mainstream label album but was never actually released. Few people got to hear Born Twice though, so when Welcome to Paradise was finally released in 1976, after years of his close association with Larry Norman and countless concerts, the demand was high. People were not disappointed. Welcome to Paradise is a stunning piece of work. I've been for a long, long time Hoping you're a friend of mine If there's one thing that I need to do Well, that's to find out more about you Conceptually, the album is broken into two halves conveniently located on side A and side B, respectively. First, we get a tour of Paradise Lost, five songs that artfully and carefully explore the fallen nature of this world and we who inhabit it. It opens with King of Hearts, a brilliant opening thesis that would have been right at home alongside the spiritually seeking post-Beatles folk pop of Jackson Brown, Cat Stevens, or Harry Chapin. I'll admit it, when I was a kid and this record first came into my life, I liked King of Hearts well enough. But knowing that the second track, Keep Me Running, was on deck, well, it was distracting. Keep Me Running, a pulsing, percussive, acoustic rock classic, chronicles the desperation of a man who really, really doesn't want to deal with the inevitable. Keep me running. takes a similar tack, actually, exploring a character who wants to think about anything other than the Eternal, but unlike the running man from track two, the winner keeps telling himself he's got it all and needs nothing else. Lung cancer gives us a taste of Stonehill's sense of humor and his really strong connection to the fundamentals of old school rock and roll. Stonehill ends side A with Puppet Strings, a highly conceptual and yet completely accessible essay on the gospel story. And I don't know if I've ever heard a better summation of the human condition than this chorus. And we're all like foolish puppets who desiring to be kings now lie pitifully crippled after cutting our own strings. I'll tell you what, even at 12 years old, that got through to me.
side B, the Christian side, Paradise Regained, we start with First Prayer, a simple ballad that is just that. Then News For You gets more evangelistic and amped up. Song for Sarah dared to explore romantic love within the context of this fallen and being redeemed story, while Christmas Song for All Year Round works to wrest Jesus from the manger and sentimentality and get him back into real life. The set closes with good news, as classic a Jesus music tune as ever there was. It's simple, direct, fun, and unapologetic, even if a bit rapture-obsessed. Larry Norman is credited with production and arrangement on this album, and he did a masterful job. A lot of credit certainly goes to engineer Andy Johns, though, who dialed in amazing sounds on the acoustic and electric instruments throughout. And if that name sounds familiar, it should. Johns engineered or produced Exile on Main Street and Sticky Fingers for the Rolling Stones and most of Zeppelin's albums in the 70s, Blind Faith, Spooky Tooth, Humble Pie, Mott the Hoople, and a whole lot more. He also produced Norman's In Another Land, which came out prior to Welcome to Paradise. I'm sure we'll talk about that one on the jukebox someday too. But just realizing that Larry and Randy were working with someone the caliber of Andy Johns is kind of amazing. Obviously the quality of the record starts and ends with Randy Stonehill and his songs, his playing, his singing. But having a guy like Johns and a character like Larry Norman in the room too, well, it's like a perfect storm. And something deep inside your soul Randy Stonehill went on to make a lot more amazing music after this, and in fact, has a new record coming out very soon. But 43 years ago, he was just getting going, and Welcome to Paradise was one of the first truly great albums to come out of the Jesus Rock Underground. It did well, all things considered, but I have long wondered, what if all of the Jackson Brown, Elton John, and Harry Nilsson fans could have heard this? I'm not going to spend too much time up here on the soapbox this episode. I feel like you've probably heard just about enough from me by now. I'll just wrap this up with this. 30 years is a long time, but it goes by way too fast. I can't believe how fast, actually. In James chapter 4, after he gets done with a righteous rebuke of people who are wasting their lives and their time fighting and lusting and coveting, Brother James reminds us that our lives are like a vapor, a mist that evaporates in front of our eyes. And all that stuff that we're worried about collecting and possessing, it's all a vapor too. But so are the things that we're afraid of, the things that hold us back from pursuing our calling, our adventures, our art. I remember riding on the school bus when I was a kid. It got pretty cold up there in Illinois in the winter, and the vapor from my breath condensed on the glass window and made for a nice little canvas for my art for a short time. Those doodles are long gone, like the vapors, and the troubles I had back then. They seemed like everything in that moment. 
I wonder if I have 30 years ahead of me. I'll be 79 then, so it's certainly possible. What are the things in my life right now that are vapor compared to the things that will last? How can I focus myself on the things that matter as much as possible and not the nonsense? Okay, I'm climbing off the soapbox now. That's going to do it for episode four. As always, I want to extend a huge thanks to my right-hand man, Bruce Brown, for editing this show and making it sound so good. Everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true.